The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. See if we can get through the material and cover it well. The topic for the weekend is the Ten Perfections. The Ten Perfections are a list of dramas that are especially useful for lay people in looking at their lives, not just in terms of the meditation practice, but your life as a whole, as a way of practicing, dedicating your life for the purpose of awakening, if not in this lifetime, in future lifetimes. As a list, it comes in the canon only very late. Um, the, the parts of the canon that refer to the Ten Perfections are probably were probably written down or probably composed around the time of King Ashoka or later. Um, they're not in the early suttas. They came during a period when later generations of Buddhists in India began to question about the different paths to awakening. There's the path of the Buddha, there's the path of the private Buddhas, there's the path of the Arahans. And the question is, what is the difference among these paths? And if you wanted to follow the path to become a Buddha, where would you find material to guide you on that path? And there are different ways they had of answering these questions. One way was to look in what are called the Jataka tales, which are tales of the Buddha's previous lifetimes, and to sort of sort out, okay, what were the qualities that the Buddha developed through these various tales? And then you can take those qualities as your guide for awakening. And in fact, it began, the path of the perfections began to replace other versions of the path that were from earlier days, um, with the idea being that not only would a Buddha, but also a private Buddha and also an Arahant would have to develop these same, same perfections. Now the Jataka tales have many different um, versions. The, each school of Buddhism developed its own version. And as they were going through the various tales and collecting the tales, um, the different schools collected different um, lists of what the Barnamis are. The collection of the tales is kind of controversial. Some of the Buddhist Jatakas or references to the Jatakas are very early. Others seem to be picking up tales that were already in the Indian tradition and saying, oh, by the way, Rama happened to be the Buddha, or so-and-so whoever starred in this particular tale was actually a Buddha in a previous lifetime. It was kind of an effort to show to the Indian people who were familiar with their own, their own tradition that you know, becoming a Buddhist didn't mean that you were leaving your old tradition. It would be like bringing Buddhism to the West and saying, okay, Paul Bunyan was actually the Buddha in a previous lifetime. Um, sort of connect you. <laughs> so the Jataka tales are not that reliable um, source of information. However, um, the list that came out, there's nothing in these lists that is in conflict with the earlier suttas. Um, so it seems to be you know, a fairly good way of encapsulating ways in which you can look at your life as, as, a, as a means to awakening. The list that was um, developed in the Sarvastivadins has six perfections. It was giving, virtue, jhana, discernment, endurance, and um, persistence. And these became the Barnamis that were developed in later into the Mahayana. The Theravada found ten in their list. Um, generosity, or giving, giving, virtue, renunciation, discernment, persistence, endurance, truth, determination, goodwill, and equanimity. In the collection of Jataka tales in the Theravada, the last ten tales, or supposedly the last ten lifetimes of the Buddha on earth before he became the Buddha, 
each is supposed to represent a different, um, different uh, perfection. Um, I was looking through the tales and thinking maybe we might want to discuss some of the tales, but some of them, there seems to be very little connection between the perfection that they're illustrating and the actual tale. Um, there's one in which they're supposed to equi- um, illustrate equanimity, and I don't see any of the characters in the tale exhibiting equanimity at all. Um, how this got connected, I have no idea. Um, discernment in the Jataka tales tends to be less discernment in terms of the Four Noble Truths or the teachings about karma, and we're just really, really, really clever in avoiding dangers. Um, and so this, uh, so I decided rather than analyzing the perfections in terms of the, how, what they mean in the Jatakas, we go back and look at what the suttas have to say, and also what more recent teachers, particularly John Lee in the Thai Forest tradition and a couple other Forest Johns, have to say about the perfections. Because if you would go to a Thai person and ask, what are you doing as you're practicing Buddhism, nine out of ten will say, developing the perfections. To say that I'm actually on the Eightfold Path sounds a little bit too lofty, but you can say, I'm working on my perfections, and this is kind of throughout the society. I mentioned this one time to a woman who was a scholar of Mahayana, and she was surprised. She thought that the Burmese belonged to the Mahayana. But it's actually there throughout Theravada practice. So the perfections are ways of looking at your life and saying, what should take priority in my life if I'm looking for awakening? Um, this is actually reflected in the word for perfection, which is bhārami, um, which can either be related to the word bhāra, which means foremost, in other words, these things take priority in your life, or bhārang, which means going to the other side, like in the old image of you know, going to the other side of the river, going or the other side of the flood to the end of suffering. Um, for the purpose of today's discussion, I'm going to place the, all ten perfections under the framework of what are called the four determinations. Determination, remember, is one of the perfections. And in the canon, they make a reference to the four qualities that go into making a determination, i.e. making a vow, making up your mind, you're going to set your mind or you set your sights on a particular goal. The four categories are, one, discernment. In other words, discerning what would be a worthwhile goal and then discerning how you're going to get there. Second one is truth. Once you've realized that you have to do something in order to reach a goal, you would actually make sacrifices for the sake of that. You really stick to your determination. The third one is generosity, realizing there are certain things you have to give up, certain things you have to abandon in order to reach that goal. I think I've told you the story about um, a friend of mine who's an author, and she writes books that are set in China, and she had one book in which um, The main character loses her mother, and um, the father swears up and down he's going to stay you know, true to the memory of the mother and not remarry and spend all this time looking after the children. And the vow lasts for about six months. He gets remarried. Not only that, gets remarried to a courtesan. Turns out the courtesan is a wise woman, though. And my friend, who's a professor at a university back east, whenever she publishes a novel, she gets invited around to the alumni clubs read from her novel, and so she has to find an incident in the novel that makes sense within 15 minutes. And so she, was, she would read this one particular passage, which had to do with the mother, the new stepmother, playing chess one evening with her stepdaughter. And as she's talking to the chess daughter as they're playing chess, she's saying, look, if you want to be happy in life, you have to decide that there's one thing you want more than anything else, and you're willing to sacrifice everything else for that one thing. And as they're playing chess, the daughter is half listening, half not listening, but she's beginning to notice that the mother is a very sloppy and very careless chess player. 
putting her pieces in very dangerous situations. And so the stepdaughter starts getting more and more aggressive in her, in her game. Of course, she's fallen for the trip that her trap that her mother has set for her. If she gets more aggressive, the mother gets her. Checkmate. Which means, of course, that the way she's playing chess is illustrating the principle that she's trying to teach. I mean, you're willing to give up your chess pieces in, in order to win the game. My friend said that after reading this to two or three alumni clubs, she had to stop because nobody liked the lesson. Everyone wants to win at chess and keep all their pieces, you know. <laughs> so part of having a true determination is realizing there's certain things you will have to give up, and you're willing to give them up. And then the fourth quality, after discernment, truth, and generosity, is calm. In other words, keep your calm as you're on the path, realizing this is a long-term goal. You have to sort of pace yourself like a marathon runner. Keep calm, um, and that will see you through. So as we divide up the, the different perfections under these four categories, that under discernment, we have discernment and goodwill. Under truth, you have truth, virtue, persistence. Under generosity, you have giving and renunciation. And under calm, you have endurance and equanimity. That's the framework for this next day and a half. Now, this placement is somewhat arbitrary, and some of the perfections could fit under various categories. For example, equanimity and renunciation could be seen as aspects of discernment, but we'll stick with the, the original origination, original organization, it, because it emphasizes three points. One is that each perfection tends to contain many of the others. As you'll, you'll see as we go through the discussion today, there's a lot of overlap between the various perfections. Um, secondly, as with in every determination, the perfections are willed. Enlightenment is not something that just happens naturally to you as you relax. It's something that you have to make up your mind. This is where I want to go, and there are things I'm going to have to sacrifice, and things that I'll have to do, some of which may be hard. Um, you can think about William James. He made a distinction one time between what you could call truths of the observer and truths of the will. Truths of the observer are things like you know, the way the, the planets go around the sun, the way galaxies are, are formulated. In other words, if you allow your desires for things to be the way you want them to be, to get in the way of finding that truth, they will get in the way. In other words, you know, for centuries they wanted to prove that this, the, you know, everything revolved around the earth. And so wanting to put the earth central, they made, you know, they made up those astrolabs and all these other things to show how, you know, why is, is it, why is it that some of the planets seem to go backwards every now and then. Or prior to Kepler, everyone thought that it would be ideal to have the planets go around in circular orbits rather than ellipses, because circles were more perfect. And the fact that they wanted things to be a certain way meant it got in the way of seeing things the way they actually are. Now those are truths of the observer. Your desires cannot get in the way of finding that truth. However, there's truths of the will, which mean which are the kinds of truths that will not become true unless you want them to be. If you want to be a good piano player, if you want to be a good sports person, if you want to be a good engineer or whatever, you have to want it. If you don't want it, it's not going to happen. And the, the perfections are truths of the will. These are things that you have to make up your mind. I really do want to develop this, otherwise it's not going to happen. Which means that conviction is the beginning of discernment in this case. You're convinced that awakening is a good goal and that it is worth your while to pursue it. Now we have to believe in the possibility and also the desirability of awakening. You also have to believe in that this is a particular this path will work for it to become true. Okay. So this means that Dharma practice of daily life is not, not daily life is not just a matter of present moment awareness or just accepting the way things are. 
It's a matter of what direction you want your life to go and making up your mind you're going to maintain that direction as you encounter difficulties. This means also then that the perfections are qualities of mind that we can choose to develop. It's important we realize that we are making choices and we're not engaging again in choiceless awareness. There are certain things that are worth paying attention to and other things that are worth putting aside. It's not, awakening is not inevitable and it's not the result of your quote-unquote true nature that is going to happen. And we'll see more of this when we start, when we discuss um, the issue of discernment below exactly how much will plays a role in the Buddha's view of the world. Even though, however, it's not our true nature to become awakening, at the same time our nature is not so defiled that we have to depend on something or someone else outside us to do the work. We're the ones that are going to be doing the work because we have the, that possibility within us. In Anguttara 1095, the Brahman comes to see the Buddha and says, Will all the world gain awakening? Will half the world or one-third of the world? And the Buddha doesn't answer. And Ananda, who's there at the time, is afraid that the person will get upset and go away and say bad things about the Buddha, not answering good questions. So he pulls the guy aside. He says, It's like a fortress at the edge of the, edge of the frontier. You have a wise, experienced gatekeeper who sees, Okay, we have one gate to the fortress, and he goes there and he checks the wall of the fortress, and he doesn't see a hole even big enough for a cat to go through. Um, there's little details like that I like in the Pali Canon. Um, and so he comes back, and he can't conclude that he knows how many people will go in and out of the fortress, but he does know that any large animals going in and out of the fortress have to go through the gate. In the same way, the Buddha doesn't know how many people are going to gain awakening or not gain awakening, but he does know if you're going to do it, you have to go by this path. And that's because we do have freedom of choice. You know, the, the Buddha cannot foretell whether you make up your mind to gain awakening or not. But if you are to gain awakening, this is the path by which you have to do it. There's another sutta, Majjhima 12, where he compares his knowledge of other people's um, paths to the fact that there are many different paths out there. Um, I, I, love, I love the list. Here's, um, he sees a path, go, person going down the path, and he says, if that person continues following that path, he will have to end to get to the the, you know, where the path leads. Um, there's one path that goes to a pit filled with burning charcoal. That's supposed to be the path to hell. Um, there's one that goes to a cesspit. That's the path to being reborn as a common animal. There's one that goes to a tree on rough ground with patchy shade. That's the path being, to being a hungry ghost. Notice that hungry ghosts are better off than animals. There's a path that leads to a, a tree on nice smooth ground with thick shade. That's the human realm. There's one that goes to a beautiful mansion. Those are the heavenly realms. And there's one that goes to a cool, clear pond surrounded by a dense, shady wood. And that's the path to nirvana. So there are these different paths out there. It's not the case that every path goes to the top of the mountain. Some paths go to a cesspit. Some goes to a pit full of burning charcoals. Which is why when the Buddha talked about how we become skillful, he didn't say anything about our innate nature. He said skillfulness is based on heedfulness. We make up the mind, our minds to realize, okay, there are dangers out there. I've got to do something to avoid those dangers. It's that determination that will get you through. So again, this is assuming that you have freedom of choice and you have to be careful to use it well. The third point that's made out of, that I want to emphasize in bringing the perfections under these, the framework of determination, is that the perfections do begin with discernment. You have to see that it is important to choose awakening as your goal and to develop each perfection. And in, guided by discernment, you have to see how to bring those perfections about and what you need to do strategically. 
this is where the sutta's teachings on discernment coincide with the Jataka teachings. Because in the Jataka teachings, the wise person or the discerning person is someone who discerns danger and thinks strategically as to how to avoid those dangers. In the same way, the Buddhist teachings on skillfulness, the Buddhist teachings on the Four Noble Truths are strategic. You you focus on these issues because they will get you through. And you have to learn how to think strategically to get along the path. Um, Although today, the main point of today's discussion is going to be Dharma practice in daily life. We will first have to discuss some more technical aspects of discernment because there's so much misunderstanding out there about what Buddhist discernment is. I was just reading a book last night. It says the Buddha says that you know, you know, life is suffering, therefore you just have to learn to resign yourself to that fact and sort of make, you know, content yourself with what you can find, which is a very defeatist way of looking at the world, and that's not the Buddha's way. So we'll have to, and then when we get some basic principle of discernment down, then we can talk about how discernment actually applies in, in daily life. Any questions about what I said just now? Or is it just still too early in the morning? Also, I forgot to mention, for those who need hearing assisted devices, hearing assisted devices out in the hall. Okay. So if there any questions, we need to use the mic when we're recording this. Here's any, the moving mic. Any questions? There's one here. Like a straight person who starts us off. Hi, uh, Jen. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, the history of the paramis and the ten perf- perfections, but uh, when they came about, what was the... Because I heard that it's got to do with the question of how one becomes a Buddha versus how one becomes an arahant. Mm-hmm. And somewhere I heard that uh, it's got to do with the idea that the qualities required to become a Buddha are more than those to become an arahant, and then was conflict or something of that sort in that? Well, there was a discussion as to whether the difference between the Barnamis for a Buddha and the Barnamis for an Arahant were qualitatively different or quantitatively different. In other words, the quantitative side said the Buddha has more Barnamis, just does more of them, the same Barnamis, basically. Now, you have five measures of discernment to be an Arahant, well, it takes 15 to become a Buddha. Um, the problem with that, of course, is once you reach five, what's to keep you from becoming an Arahant? And so the, the belief behind that was, and this was the beginning of the idea of bodhicitta, which is you make up your mind ahead of time what kind of awakening you want to dedicate your practice to. And that determination will see you all the way through. Um, the other was basically that it was qualitatively different. That the discernment, particularly on the issue of discernment or wisdom, was that the Buddha's wisdom was just qualitative. It was a different kind of discernment entirely. And you see this in the Brajnabharamita Suttas, Sutras, where you know, the Arahant's wisdom is about how things arise and pass away, and using that knowledge to get awakening. And the Bodhisattva's wisdom is things don't arise, things don't pass away. They just look like it. But in reality, everything is just this one undifferentiated, non-arising, non-passing by reality, which is very different. And so that would, okay, you, you sign on to that, then they said, okay, that's, it's, like, it's like leveraging a buyout. You use lots and lots of merit, just taking up your mind, making your mind, this is the kind of awakening I want to have. And if I believe in this, I will guarantee I will not become an arahant. But that somehow I believe that eventually down the line, it will turn me into a Buddha. 
as you can see, I don't think much of that idea, but um, <laughs> but that's that's the way they were thinking. Balaji, there's a question back there. So you spoke about the truth, the truth of the observer, and the truth of the will. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question is: Did it die? No. Uh, so the truth of the observer if I understand what you are saying is that um, the observer can be kind of set on on seeing something but it's actually get in the way of seeing the real truth right? You can make up your mind that you want to see the truth but your idea of what you would like the truth to be you cannot allow that to get in the way yes so then I guess I'm a little confused of um the truth of the will, because the truth of the will would be like, you know, I used to be a professional ballerina, so I'm sacrificing everything because I want to dance and I brought me a lot of happiness. But I could actually say that the observer has that will of making that scientific discovery, but it's getting in the way. So in one case, it seems to be positive. In one case, it seems to be negative. Could you explain the difference? Well, as with everything that William James said, there's a little bit of fuzziness in there. But um, basically, you, you, as a scientist, you want to find out this truth about, this, say, the planets. Um, so that, that will is there, the desire to know what they're doing. But then you have to pull back and say, I can't make up my mind ahead of time how I want the experiment to come out. And that's where the observer has to take over. Now, in truth of the will, say you wanted to become a ballerina, but you're lacking legs. You'd have to observe. Well, okay, I can't do this without legs. But so, as you know, you've, otherwise you've got the you know, you've got the body that's required to become a ballerina. You can do many, many different things with that body, and you make up your mind. I want to train this body so it becomes a ballerina. So there's a there's an element of will in both, but the the, the role played by your will has to be different. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Yes, behind you. Um. It's. Uh, I'm a little confused the way that you split the ten perfections. Mm-hmm. So when I looked at the list of four mm-hmm. main things, and there are only seven of the perfections listed. Okay, will you look at the headings? One of the headings. Oh, the heading one, yes. is one. Okay, you've got... Calm itself is not one of the perfections. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I got it. And then, of course, determination lies behind all of those. Got it. Okay, okay. okay. thank you. Sure. Oh, here comes the mic up here. Ah, there's a second mic. So there was an author who wants to find reality as <laughs> that which, even if I stop believing in it, continues to exist. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be the uh, well, truth I forgot the term the truth, truth of the, the will truth of the observer yes yeah. yeah, right so <clears throat> it seems then uh, the truth of the will is more like uh, this is how I want to shape things right mm-hmm. and the Buddha places a lot of emphasis on that we do have a role in shaping things I mean that's our basic way of engaging with, even with our senses to begin with and then from there what you want to do with what you've got. I mean, there's a, pas- a very interesting passage for, especially given the common belief about mindfulness being okay, accepting things arising, accepting things passing away. 
There's a passage where the Buddha says, when you have mindfulness as a governing principle in your practice, if you see that something unskillful has not yet arisen, you try to make it arise, and then you try to keep it from passing away. Remember, in his definition of mindfulness, it's a quality of the memory that you're remembering what's skillful, what's not skillful, how to go about encouraging what's skillful, discouraging what's unskillful. So there are certain things that we, we, do, we can play a role. We're not just passive observers watching the, the passive reality. I mean, it's like the difference between saying reality is like a TV show back in the 50s, where whatever was on TV, that's what you had to watch. Whereas now it's more like an interactive computer game or video game, that you play a role in how, the, how it's going to come, come out. And the Buddha is more like a, he's more like a gamer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Don't quote me on that, okay? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You look like you had a follow-up. Well, <laughs> Speak into the mic. There's a whole area of thought I've been going through lately, um, which is uh, Guy Armstrong came and gave a day on emptiness, mm-hmm. and so, and so of course, which opens a whole <laughs> whole lot of stuff. But there's um, conventional free will doesn't. This is my understanding. Conventional free will doesn't exist in the sense that. Well, self. If there's no self... The Buddha never said that. Okay, help me. Okay. The Buddha said, he never answers the question as to whether or not there is a self. That's one of those questions he puts aside. We could talk all day about that. But just, you know, trust me. (laughs) It's in the canon. Um, Son Yukuna Nagaya 4410, Majjama Nagaya 2, where he says the questions of the existence and non-existence of the self are questions to avoid. He does talk about how we create a sense of self, and then there are passages where he talks about using your sense of self when you need to on the path, because your sense of self is basically your strategy for figuring out what do you want, how are you going to provide yourself for that, who's going to enjoy the results of what you want once you've found it. So you've got the self as the provider and the self as the consumer, you might say. And as long as you are looking for happiness that requires that you do something, to gain that happiness, you're going to have to have both of those senses of self. Again, he uses the self as a governing principle, with the idea being that if you really love yourself, i.e. as a consumer, you're going to stick with the path. Um, there's a sense of self that says, okay, other people can do this, they're human beings, I'm a human being, I should be able to do it too. That's yourself as a provider. And those are necessary functions on the path. Now, when you finally get to a happiness that doesn't require conditions, i.e. nirvana, that's when you can put both senses, both all those senses of self away. In the meantime, you find that any sense of self that's getting in the way of that goal is something that you have to learn how to give up. This is how you apply not-self as a, as a strategy. Well, that's kind of what I, I've noticed in life I can, like if I want something, I can generate this, I can try to generate this, sen- this self that's going to have that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or I can try to generate a self that's going to make something go away. Mm-hmm. And so that's very that, that seems toxic. Well, it's not always toxic if you want awakening. I, I guess it's a degree where it can become 
unhealthy. It's unhealthy if you say, I'm just going to focus my mind on going to that mountain at the side of the, on the, on the edge of the horizon, so focused on that mountain that I'm not going to watch the road as I drive there. Okay. That's when it's unhealthy. Okay. But if you know, okay, this path, this road leads to the mountain, I'm going to focus on the road. Okay. That's a healthy application of self. Okay. And a healthy use of your desire. Okay, let me digest it. Okay. okay. <laughs> okay. Question over here. Um, so, would you say then that the Buddha would say these are the um, say quintessential consummate governing qualities for awakening? He never said it. <laughs> yeah. So, it's, so how would he but approach are, a list the thing, like the, this? The thing that the, the, the list is useful one. That there's nothing in conflict with things the Buddha said otherwise. I mean, in some cases it's similar, and we'll get to the, the, the point that the Barmese really makes sense on the assumption that you're actually going, consciousness does go continue after the death of the body, and you're going to be developing good qualities in that consciousness. These are things that you work on. And that's, this is why this is a good way of focusing on these things as opposed to, you know, trying to. Get ahead in life, or get ahead okay. in the world. One and then two. There's just so many, many good teachings, say from the Thai forest tradition and other aspects of the tradition, that focus on these as a list. So there's nothing in conflict with it, with what the Buddha taught. They just bring out certain qualities in the suttas that the Buddha himself never put into a list. But they're especially useful when you're looking at, say, to what extent when I am in, engaged in my occupation. Is it actually helping me towards awakening, or is it getting in the way? If it's developing these qualities, it's actually helping. So, say, Ajahn Lee, Ajahn Huang, when they're talking about... Ajahn Cha, Ajahn Mahabua. When they're talking about be in, ingenious, be mm-hmm. observant, mm-hmm. they wouldn't have any um, qualms with people following this list versus what, what's skillful. They, in terms, they themselves talk in these terms. Okay. So when you're being skillful, when you need to figure out what to do in the moment, mm-hmm. this list is a good foundation mm-hmm. right. to fall back on. Right. When in doubt, check, which check bar me are you working on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the very least, you're always working on endurance. You know. okay. okay, let's move on. Okay. What are some of the basic principles of discernment? To begin with, the Buddha has you start by honoring your desire for true happiness. The, there's a series of questions the Buddha said lie at the beginning of discernment, and they go like this. What when I do what will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness? What when I do what will lead to my long-term harm and suffering? Now, the discernment there lies in seeing, one, happiness and suffering do depend on your actions. So it's what you're doing that's going to make a difference. And then, two, long-term is better than short-term for happiness, which sounds pretty, pretty basic, common, kind of common sense. In fact, there's a passage in the Dhammapada where the, the verse goes, if you see that there is a greater happiness that comes from sacrificing a lesser happiness, the enlightened person will sacrifice the lesser happiness for the sake of the greater happiness. And one of the British translators of that verse appended a note saying, this could not possibly be the meaning of this phrase. 
because it's just too commonsensical. Why do we need a Buddha to tell us this? But then you look at the way people live their lives. We need a Buddha to tell us, you know. <laughs> so, but again, it's, it starts with the desire for happiness. This is the Buddha's basic assumption. Is he, he will teach you. If you're interested in finding true happiness, he'll be happy to teach you. He's not assuming that you have Buddha nature. He's not assuming that you're basically good or basically bad. He is assuming you do want to find true happiness and he's willing to help tell you to do this. So your desire for true happiness is something that should be honored. In other words, it is true happiness, a happiness that doesn't depend on conditions, is something possible. And the path that leads there can be a path that's not, a, in fact, it cannot be a selfish path. It has to be a path that develops good qualities of mind. You know, the, the virtues of the Buddha, wisdom, compassion, purity, all come around to being wise in how you look for your happiness. Wisdom in the sense of seeing that a true happiness is possible and I have to follow it. Compassion, realizing that I can't let my pursuit of happiness harm other people. And then purity is actually looking at your actions and being very careful about what you're doing, seeing, learning from your mistakes, learning from what you've done well, so that you realize that you're not going just on good intentions, but you're actually going on skillful intentions. All of this comes down to the wise pursuit of happiness. So that's something for us to honor. This becomes the context both for what is called mundane right view, which is the belief in the power of action, and that your actions will have, have consequences that will go beyond this lifetime, and then transcendent right view in terms of the Four Noble Truths. In other words, the Buddha didn't say, we're, we're just going to get rid of all suffering on earth. He's saying, the suffering that's weighing down your mind is the suffering that you're causing yourself through your actions. But there is a path that you can also want to follow, and desire is part of the Eightfold Path that will lead to the end of suffering. So your actions and your desire for happiness are our underlying assumption for discernment. So this comes down to the power and what you call power and primacy of the mind. Um, this comes down to three main points. The first point is the mind is not just an epiphenomenon, as they say, of physical processes. In other words, this, what you're experiencing is not just the fact that you've got chemical reactions going on in the body. There is something to the mind that goes beyond beyond the physical processes. It is the actual instigator of action. And its engagement with the senses is proactive and purposeful. We're not just sitting here again, watching the passing show, that the mind has desires that's going out there. And you find out, as you get deeper into the practice, that the simple fact that you are receiving sensory input has to depend on a certain act of will in the mind to go out and engage. So there's a, there's a proactive and purposeful side of the mind. Your purpose is you want happiness. Now this is very different from Freud or, um, say, Darwin, which is saying your purpose is just to survive. The Buddha says, no, your purpose is actually to be happy in your survival. Now your genes may, well, genes don't want anything, but you know, they say, well, kids, okay, you have this biological imperative to want to survive, but there are a lot of people who find, okay, my life is no longer providing happiness, I don't want to survive anymore. If you see no purpose in no purpose in survival, you'd be happy to just give up. But we're out there for happiness, and this is what keeps us going. That's the Buddha's. Um, that's the Buddha's take on this. Um, and he also says that desire is the root of all phenomena. In other words, everything you experience has the desire for you to experience, and then to try to find happiness out of that. Now, this becomes the basis. Um, 
for the Four Noble Truths. I mean, the, the cause of suffering that the, the Buddha is trying to solve is craving. Again, desire comes first, but then we act on it in an unskillful way, or the desire itself is unskillful, at least to suffering. If the desire is skillful, that becomes part of right effort, which is a factor in the path. This is why the Buddha, when he discussed right view, he made it a matter of the four noble truths rather than the three characteristics. I'm going to talk about this for a bit. Um, in other words, we start with the view that happiness is something worth pursuing, and you have to divide up your desires as to whether they're leading in the direction you want or not. As opposed to simply saying, okay, everything is impermanent based on the, on the idea that things are impermanent, I will then develop a philosophy. When I was working on the, um, the book on the path out there, I was reading other people's discussions on the Eightfold Path, and almost everybody comes down to the three characteristics as being sort of the underlying reality that the Buddha is dealing with. And that basically the three characteristics are right view. But if you start with the three characteristics, you can come to all kinds of conclusions. One is why well, everything is impermanent, therefore don't try to hold on to anything, don't have any fixed views. Just learn how to sort of dance with reality as it comes dancing with you. Um, um, and then you'll be okay. But again, it's, that's, not, that's not a life without clinging. That's a life with a lot of... It's, it's a serial clinger. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you can quote me on that. Okay. <laughs> No, that you hold on to this, and then when it starts, when it starts disappearing, then you move on to something else, and then you move on to something else. You just keep clinging, 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 and that's not going to be the end of suffering. You know, you're just learning, and, and it puts you in a very precarious situation because <clears throat> you don't know who's coming down the line next that you're going to, you know, you're going to be dancing with. Um, sometimes you say suffering comes from resisting change, therefore just allow it to happen. Again, the Buddha never said that. He said suffering is in the clinging. We cling to a particular desire that's going to cause suffering. And whatever you try to cling to, whether it's permanent or impermanent, it is possible even to try to cling to the experience of awakening. And you're still going to suffer in that. So it's not just because you're trying to hold on to something that's going to you know, fall through your grasp. The fact that you're trying to hold on and feed off of things, the word for clinging in Pali, Upadana, can also mean to take sustenance, to feed on something. And we're constantly feeding. <clears throat> whether we're feeding off, trying to feed off of one thing for a long period of time or you know, taking bites here and there. We're still trying to feed off things. And it's, in the, and it's the necessity to keep feeding. That's why we keep suffering. If bright view was simply a matter of impermanence of things, you could say, well, my stomach is impermanent, food is impermanent, I'll just stop eating doesn't work. I mean, there, there's something inside you that says, I got to feed. And the mind works the same way. And what the path does is basically say, what can we find a happiness that is so satisfactory that does not require feeding so you can stop the feeding? That would be the end of suffering. Now this will mean that you have to do things in order to follow that path. There, there will be clinging in the path. And the path is a goal that requires determination. And there's going to be some suffering in that, but the Buddha said, hey, look, it's suffering for the purpose of getting beyond suffering. So we're not just going to say, okay, I'll just accept whatever comes, I'll learn how to you know, just sort of not try to be fixed in my views or fixed in my, my clingings, but I'm going to try to figure out what can I do to train the mind so it gets beyond clinging. 
that's, that's the purpose of discernment. Well, that's the general aim of discernment that underlies the perfections. Let's see if I said everything I wanted to talk about. What was this? Train the mind so that it doesn't need to feed anymore. That it actually finds a happiness that does not require feeding. We're talking about being a serial clinger. Um, I was watching a French interview show. The French actually have a, a weekly show devoted to Buddhism. It's called Sagesse Bouddhiste. And if you think American drama is wacky, <laughs> they had a Zen, um, whatchamacallit, um, Dharma combat in France. And it turned out that the Japanese Zen master who came to kind of watch over the combat could not understand French, but he could understand English, so the French had to conduct it in English. And so you know, the, the woman coming out to do the Dharma combat, you know, she comes out with staff. And um, the question was, you know, they, they say that Nirvana, we are already awakened, so why do we try to awaken? And so she had to answer that. So I've forgotten exactly what her answer was. Um, and then the, there was a follow-up question about, you know, how, how do you explain what you just said? Which is, the answer is blowing in the wind. <laughs> she won the combat. Um, but the point that was relevant is they had this professor of, professor of Theravada was on the show. Um, the woman who was the interviewer was asking him questions about dependent co-arising. And he was saying, basically the basic message of dependent co-arising is everything is dependent on conditions, which means that everything has to change. And she said, well, how does that apply in daily life? He says, well, it's like this. My love for you today is going to be different from my love for you yesterday. I said, if that's not a French definition of dependent co-arising. <laughs> But it's basically the same principle I said, you know, the serial clinger, you know. It's going to be different today from what it was yesterday, so you just keep on clinging, which is not a solution. If you really want to be able to trust yourself, you've got to provide the mind with a good purpose, which is finding happiness that goes beyond the need to feed. So it's both a matter of commitment, trust, and you know, devoting yourself to something that's more than just accepting things as they come. This is why the perfections of truth and endurance play a huge role in all the lists of the perfections. You have to stick with the path for it, work, for it to work. So you're not running around feeding indiscriminately. We think of the path as a raft going across the river. You do, we all like to, the part where it says, okay, when you get to the other side of the shore, you can let go of the raft. You don't have to carry it with you. To get over there, though, requires that you hold on to the raft as you're crossing the river. Otherwise, you'll be swept, swept down the stream. So that's the first principle of discernment, which talks about how the, the mind is not just an epiphenomenon, it is actually a proactive part in creating our experience. And we have to give it a good purpose. Um, the second assumption is that the consciousness as a process can survive the death of the body. As we said, what, the, what your consciousness depends on is craving. It clings to the craving. 
and craving and consciousness keep feeding each other. And it has a potential for keep going, even as this body leaves and you go on to the next one. That's why you might say that the Buddhist understanding of the mind comes not from looking at the mind from outside, but what's a more phenomenological approach to the mind. What does it feel like to be inside consciousness? And you realize that from inside, consciousness comes prior to the body, and it's the clinging that keeps the consciousness going, clinging to craving. And since it does survive the process of the body, the perfections are like other dharma lists that the Buddha gives actually in the suttas for how you live your life now so that it will benefit future lives. Um, there are four qualities that are listed in um, Anguttara 854, which are conviction, generosity, virtue, and discernment. Now the virtue, generosity, and the discernment overlap with the, with the, with the perfections. There are the seven treasures that are listed in Anguttara 7.7 or 7.6. And that's where you have conviction, virtue, shame, a healthy sense of shame. There's an article in, on the website Dhamma Talks called In the Eyes of the Wise that talks about when the Buddha is talking about healthy shame, it's not shame as the opposite of pride, it's shame as the opposite of shamelessness. It's, good, it's a good distinction to make. Compunction, which is basically realizing my actions are going to have results. I don't want to do anything that's going to cause harm. Learning, um, generosity, and discernment. So those are the seven treasures. There are the three forms of merit, which are generosity, virtue, and the development of goodwill. All these lists will share generosity and virtue. Two of them add discernment. And all of them either contain or are based on conviction, i.e. conviction in the Buddha's awakening. So, that's the second, second assumption, is that your mind is, or your consciousness is a process that does not need to depend on the body. It will survive the death of the body. However, um, given the power of the mind, there are certain limitations imposed on the, on the mind and its ability to get what it wants. These are imposed by, simply by the way cause and effect works. There are consequences in your source of happiness that are determined by patterns of cause and effect that are constant and are beyond your control. You cannot change these patterns. Now, there's some way that you can work within the patterns. This is why it's the path to awakening is a skill. You have to figure out what are the what are basically the patterns of cause and effect that I have to take into account if I'm going to find happiness. There's a you know the old Zen saying that the great way is not difficult for those with no preferences. And the only way you can make sense out of that is okay. You do prefer the end of suffering to suffering, but when you figure out, okay, this has to be done in order to reach the end of suffering, whether you like it or not, that's something you've got to do. So I suppose I should have given a trigger warning for that one. You can't just choose any path you like and expect that it's going to give you results. The illustration the Buddha gives is of trying to get milk out of a cow. You can twist the horn of the cow and you're not going to get milk. You pull the udder, you will get milk. And a lot of the problems that we have is that you know, we're sitting there twisting, twisting, twisting the horn of the cow, and someone says, you know, twisting the horn of the cow is not going to help you. Why don't you stop? And you stop and you hey, then it's not much nicer not to be twisting the horn of the cow. I'm not being harassed, the cow's not being harassed. Um, but you still don't get the milk. 
you've got to figure out what do I do in order to get the milk, and then after you have to do that. Yes. So, are you saying um, then it's categorically that um, everybody needs to come to that understanding of there are these patterns? So, um, so the patterns are the dependent co-arising, and we each individual has specific individual patterning that we have to get through, but it all umbrellas under dependent co-arising. Well, it comes under dependent co-arising, and also the, the principle underlying dependent co-arising is what the Buddha calls this, that conditionality, which is that there are some things coming in from the past, determined by your past actions, but they don't totally shape the present moment, that you have a role to play in the present moment as to how you shape them, but there are skillful and unskillful ways of doing that. That's categorically And that's categorically. Across. Yeah. I mean, there are only two teachings of the Buddha that are categorical. One is that skillful actions should be developed, unskillful actions should be abandoned. Right, okay. And the other one is the Four Noble Truths. So, so however each of us is to work that out, that's an, an individual basis. That's individual, but yeah, it, it all falls under the general pattern. Okay. Because you know, I mean, we all have different unskillful actions and different skillful actions in our background. We come into life very differently conditioned, let's put it this way. If you've ever had any kids, you know your first kid was not the same person as your second kid. I know in my own case, you know, my, my older brother and I sometimes discuss what life was like growing up together. And I've, I've come to the realization, my mother and father for him were very different from my mother mm -hmm. and father for me, um, even though we were there in the same room. So it's, you know, there's a conditioning that we bring in based on our past actions. And then how we are going to overcome those things will be an individual matter, but the general pattern is the same. It's not that you're going to find the pattern to awakening by killing. You know. And hence the, the Baramis are a good direction. I mean, they, they give you a filter. checklist. To, you know, it's just, okay, where, where am I still weak? Okay. So what all this means, and this, this one of the limitations by cause and effect, is that each perfection is tempered and by balance by the need to understand cause and effect and understanding how to make useful distinctions, what can and should be changed, what can't be changed. This is why I like to translate, one of the reasons why I translate the word banya as discernment as opposed to wisdom, because it requires seeing distinctions. Okay. The role of discernment is strategic and pragmatic. There are causes and effects that fall in your desire for true happiness that will give some effects that are preferable to others. It's a skill. And when they talk about the, the knowledge that overcomes ignorance, it's not only knowledge of the Four Noble Truths, but also knowledge of having mastered the skills appropriate to each. You know, that you have to comprehend suffering, that you should abandon the cause, realize cessation, and develop the path. This is why right view is conjoined with right resolve. You don't just have right views, but the right views have implications as to what you should do, how you should go about this. And this includes developing goodwill and developing the principle of renunciation. So one of the implications that these are skills is that we need to get guidance from others as to what to do and what not to do. It also implies that there are lessons we can learn from the past. It's not like each moment is a fresh new moment that is unprecedented in the, in the annals of the universe. 
there are things that we can learn from our own past behavior. We can learn from the experience of other people as to what works and what doesn't work. But then we have to develop our own powers of perception and discernment to see these things for ourselves, as with any skill. And this connection between the truths and their purpose comes down to a, a term in, in Pali called atta, A-T-T-H-A, which is not atta, A-T-T-A. It's not self. Atta means, the word means both purpose and meaning. To understand the meaning of a, of a particular teaching, you also have to understand where does it lead. And you really understand that only when you've gotten to where it leads. Which is why so much of the path has to be taken on conviction before you actually get the results. But to understand it, you not only have to, it's not just a matter of just knowing how the terms are defined, but knowing what particular teaching is this intended for, or what purpose is this intended for. And then t having tasted what that particular goal is, that's when you understand the teaching. So what we have here are words about the perfections that you, you know, assume as a kind of a working hypothesis, but then as you develop them, your understanding of it will grow. And when you've reached the awakening, but that's when you know what they're all about, for sure. Up to that point, you're still kind of feeling your way. Any questions on those points? My glasses. So is the point of uh, reaching awakening uh, stream entry or... Okay, so that's the point where we can say one gets an idea of what this teaching is. What this is. is all about. Mm -hmm. And one thing I've kind of uh, sort of uh, felt is that it seems like the canon doesn't uh, emphasize so much of what the path is like after stream entry. Uh, there's much more emphasis of what's before that. Is that because they want us to get there first and then after that we'll know? What's to be done? You have a general idea of what needs to be done. I mean, there are there's still particular issues that you have to work through, but basically, no, this is where this is leading. I see. Okay, thank you. There's a question back there. Um, whatever is arising in the mind, um, are they results of past actions? Do I have any control? Okay, well, things that just kind of pop up in the mind, I would say, that comes from your past actions. What you do with them, that's your present action. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Question? Okay. Um, so, continuing with my last question, in, in light of discernment, um, it seems that if I'm mindful, um, then discernment can arise and I can make good choices towards how to apply my free will. But if, if sort of the light of mindfulness is off, then um, I can apply my free will to things that will... Uh, it can create, um, oh, in the first case I can reach for something, but it can be skillful. Mm -hmm. um, whereas when the light of awareness or mindfulness is off, 
it's more, in my experience, it's more likely to turn into, um, what do you call it, not grasping, uh, attachment. Attaching, uh, clinging. Clinging, mm-hmm. and bring suffering. Mm-hmm. So does that seem like a good okay, understanding? Um, one, you know, mindfulness, the way the Buddha taught mindfulness, actually there are three qualities that come together. There's mindfulness, i.e. remembering lessons from the past, to alertness and actually actually watching what's going on in your mind, watching what you're doing. So you're really clear about what's hap- what you are doing in the present moment and the results you're getting. And then three is the quality of ardency, is saying, I'm going to do this well. All three of those have to come together. Did you say that again? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mindfulness is remembering what, you, you know, what you've learned from the past, mm-hmm. either what you've heard or what you've seen in your own experience. And that has to be sort of present there to tell you, hey, hey you know, don't. Like I've done this before and that didn't work out so It didn't work well. out so better, you know. It's, I did this and that was great right. for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. And that'll give you some guidance. Cause, but then you have to check it against your alertness. Because there's some lessons we learned as little kids. We learned the wrong lesson. You know, it's like that story about the Thai peasant who goes into town and he sees a flashing neon light. He goes, and he blows on it and it goes out. <laughs> and so he assumes. <laughs> We have to check that again. Does it go out without my blowing it on it? Was it just a fluke the last time? So that your alertness is watching the second time around. And the ardency is basically, I want to learn good lessons from this and I want to apply well what I learned from the past. And all, those, all three of those are involved in the Buddhist, what the Buddha calls establishing mindfulness. And then, okay, what you, with the insights that come at that point tend to be better the ones than the insights that come when you're, when you're lacking these qualities. But then again, you have to check them again. Sometimes when I feel like um, mindfulness is well established, I, I start going through the day accomplishing things in a way that's not clinging mm-hmm. and it becomes very efficient. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to reflect on what you just said. And I'm aware, I can see now I'm aware of what has worked and what hasn't worked. And I'm aware that when I did that in the past, it turned out really bad. And and I'm also alert, like I'm really alert to what's going on around me. And I've forgotten what the third thing is. Ardency. Ardency. Yeah, and ardency. Yeah, I feel really focused and intent on, on... on doing things. Mm-hmm. So that seems all good. Yeah, it's, I mean, the problem is sometimes there are clingings that go on and we're not aware of them because they're not running against, up against other things. Because mm-hmm. oh. you get, you, you know, your sense of yourself, for example, is strongest when you are in conflict. Either inner conflict or outer conflict. It's mm-hmm. when there's no conflict going on, it can still be there, but you don't sense it because it's pushing against nothing that's pushing back. So there still is a certain amount of clinging that goes on in that process, but it's, you're actually clinging to the mindfulness, you're clinging to the process of the path, which is better than clinging to, you know, your desire to gamble or whatever. Okay. All right, thanks. Mm-hmm. Question over here. Oh, I just had one oh, question. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, so just before you move on to the next one, um, after discernment, wanted to make sure that um, I wrote down at one point, you said discernment is um, seeing distinction. Would that be your definition of discernment? That's one, one of the functions. 
okay. discernment is one is seeing distinctions and the second one is seeing how do I use these distinctions well what's the best use of these distinctions mm, can you give an example okay um, so you can distinguish between you know, the dark leaves and the light leaves on that tree but is there any use for that no so we just put that aside it's not every distinction that's going to matter. You try to think about what, what distinctions are really worthwhile point, paying attention to. And then the question is, once you've paid attention to them, how do you use these distinctions? Like seeing the distinction between a, a desire that would lead to suffering or a desire that would lead away from suffering, that's a very important distinction. The distinction between, I've got a cause of suffering, we'll talk about this later, there's a cause of, some causes of suffering go away when you just look at them. And the reason they've had power over the mind is you never really look, looked squarely at them, but as soon as you look at them, you say, oh my gosh, this is stupid. You drop it. And there are other causes of suffering that you look at them and look at them and look at them, they just look right back. <laughs> and say, what are you going to do? <laughs> look back. <laughs> um. But in the context of the perfections, mm-hmm. um, you would say that anyone has discernment, mm-hmm. right? So what you're teaching today is kind of there is a scale and how you get to perfect that. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. In other words, in other words, you can see distinctions that you wouldn't be able to see otherwise and, and you have better uh, judgment on how to use them. Right. Right? That's basically what it comes down to. Okay. Thank you. Um, so for me, um, applying the idea of discernment is very ripe in my meditation practice, I feel. So can you talk a little bit about this idea about discernment of breath and the idea of watching the breath, simply observing it as it is, versus um, elevating it to a place that's beneficial for the various chakras we discussed? Because that's something new. Um, it's, it's like a very slight change? Are we watching the breath and just seeing it as it is, or are we expected to find a way to make it work for us? Mm-hmm. Well, again, if you're, one of the purposes of the path is to develop right concentration. And in the process of making the breath work for you to develop right concentration, you will def- you'll see both okay, that some, some types of breathing are more conducive to concentration than others. But also you'll see to the extent to which what you thought was a process happening on its own is something that you were actually fabricating through your intention. Because the Buddha does call breath as, he describes it as a bodily fabrication, which means there's an intentional element in it. And one of the best ways to see that intentional element is to consciously intend different ways of breathing. So you, you try it and then you observe, okay, what, what's working, what's not working. This is where the truths of the will and the truths of the observer have to come together. You can say, I want, I want calm breathing to work all the time, and wait a minute, it's not going to work all the time. You have to use your discernment as to when it's working and when it's not. But the idea that we're just watching this passively as it's just happening on its own, there is, we miss an element of our intention that's actually going on kind of under the current or under, under the radar. So this is one way of bringing it up into your conscious awareness. Question behind you. So, just, okay. so it's clear to me that the purpose of life is the attainment of awakening or true happiness. So what is the purpose of that breath perfectly calibrated in the chakra? What, 
because what, what it helps you for? it helps you gain concentration so that you can gain awakening. Without the concentration, you're not going to be able to gain the, gain the awakening. Hi. Uh, <laughs> um, is it true that consciousness is a conditioned phenomenon? That's number one. That's, mm-hmm. So that's correct. Mm-hmm. So when you say that when you le- when consciousness leaves the body, it can take the clinging with it. How how is that possible if the causes and conditions are part of mind and not consciousness? Okay, the, the condition for consciousness, or you know, you look in the, in dependent core arising. Consciousness is shaped by ignorance. It's also shaped by fabrication. Okay. Okay. Body isn't in there. You can, it can depend on any one of these fabrications. Of course, fabrication has to depend on consciousness. There's one, one description of dependent core rising that actually has the two depending on each other. Okay. 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 So, I mean, there is also an uncon- unconditioned consciousness, which is be the consciousness of awakening. And because it's un- and this is one of the strategic challenges of the path, we're trying to find something unconditioned, but the path itself is conditions. And this is why the Buddha uses the image of the path rather than saying that the path causes the goal. He says the path takes you there. An image that was later used in the tradition was that it's like a road going to a mountain. Mm-hmm. The road going to the mountain doesn't cause the mountain, but if you follow the road, you get there. Thank you. Question over here. Yeah, um, no, okay, I am curious for the reason for having goodwill under discernment. It seemed like it might fit somewhere else, but what do you see the relationship between discernment and goodwill? Two things. One, there's one place where the Buddha says, if you have ill will for somebody, that's a sign you have wrong view. The idea that ill will could actually be a good thing. One. Two, goodwill is, comes under right resolve, which is one of the discernment factors of the path. You know, resolving on non-ill will, i.e. resolving on goodwill, is, is part of discernment. So that's why I put it there. You're right. I mean, you could put goodwill under anything. You know. I, I think I, I didn't quite get what you were saying about ill will. If you, if you feel ill will towards somebody, it could be an indication of discernment because... It, no, it, it is a sign of wrong view. Oh, it is a sign of wrong view. Yeah. Doesn't mean that you're picking up on there being something unhealthy no, 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 about no, that no. person. It's a sign that you yourself don't understand the causes of, of suffering. Okay. okay. Question in the back. Is there a mic in the back? John, I have two questions. The um, first is, if your if your goal with the perfections is Buddhahood, can you develop the perfections and the Eightfold Path at the same time, or is there some sequence to that? Well, they basically overlap. I mean, the, the the one factor of the path that's really missing in the perfections is right concentration. 
However, you can, you can see right concentration is coming under the perfection of renunciation. So there's an overlap. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the second question is, if you attain stream entry, does that cut off uh, Buddhahood? Or could you still attain Buddhahood after stream entry? I don't know. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> now, the tradition has all kinds of answers about that, but it's hard to tell. Thank you. Question over here. Hello. Um, I think you're, sorry, referring to something about physical, uh, what the Buddha said in regards to like physical making conscious as well as conscious. Creating physical events, yeah. Could you give us, or did the Buddha give any example of, like, say, the, uh, the, the conscious creating physical? It's simply that your experience of physical events requires consciousness. Could you give an example? If you weren't conscious, you wouldn't know you had a body. Well, is, is there something, is there, like, an example of that that we could, like, Use. I mean, I know when I play, like, if you play, like, Tetris or you play, like, or you, you do a puzzle, mm-hmm. there's some interesting things going there. Is there something kind of interesting with our conscious, like when we're meditating, for example, that's working with our physical body? The only extent he once discovered, he, he talked about that was simply that, again, without the fact of consciousness, you wouldn't know you had a body. And it's through the process of fabrication, i.e. through your intentions, that you can actually change what's going on in the body. I mean, just simply the fact that you can move comes from the fact that the mind's intentions and that you can choose whether to put your hand in a fire or not put your hand in a fire. Consciousness is is there behind that. Okay, cool. (laughs) There's a lot going on in consciousness that the Buddha doesn't talk about. For example, like... For, like when I, I I read the Pali Canon, I think I s- saw that and I was, wow, this is interesting. Like this is, this is sparking like my creativity. But I was thinking, why 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 doesn't he? Why wouldn't the Buddha give maybe some more details? Yeah, or like or like a parable or something to follow that. His his main it's very his main, confusing. His main interest is how do you how do you understand consciousness for the purpose of putting it into suffering. And then once you've done that, they say, okay, you can explore consciousness as much as you want. But let's first talk about the fact that you're suffering right now, and then let's deal with that. And what you need to know about your consciousness for that purpose. That's all he talks about. Okay. Can you briefly tell us... uh uh, the Pali names for these uh, perfections because somehow I feel like the translations are slightly different from what I have seen in other places. Mm-hmm. For example, I'm, I'm, it just, just struck me that I don't see a word which is directly uh, or commonly used for uh, aditana. Uh, That's determination. Determination, but I... I don't see that in this in this list. It's the framework for the, the whole list. framework yes. is to be seen as that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I see. 
there's a what tasi what tasine bawika sa That's that's the way of memorizing them. Oh, ta ta dana si sila ne ne kamat bawika banya bridya kanti. Right. What I translate as endurance here could also be translated as patience. Sacha for truth, atitana determination. I see. Me meta goodwill. U equanimity. Okay. Yep. Thank you. I know I know an old woman who whose parents were supporters of Ajahn Lee when she was a little girl. And before she went off to get take her school exams, he taught her this list. He said, you'll, you'll pass the exam. <laughs> so she did. No. You know the ties. Hmm? There's a tie attitude. You know, if you, you learn a good chant, it'll see you through. <laughs> okay. Let's do a little bit more on discernment before we break for them. <laughs> My gosh, we've got five minutes for discernment. Um, what do you do? Okay. One of the main things that we'll stop, we'll do, I want to bring up before we stop for the morning, is that um, discernment it lies at the beginning of the path. It's the first, the first, first factors in the Eightfold Path. Um, it gives guidance to the other perfections, but at the same time it's going to learn from the perfections as you develop them. And this is a pattern you see throughout the practice. As you start out with what the Buddha calls knowledge that comes from listening, and there's knowledge that comes from thinking. But then it gets expanded by knowledge that comes through practice. There's sutta mayapanya, jinta mayapanya, pavana mayapanya. And it's that last, the knowledge or the discernment that comes from actually putting things into practice. That's the, that's the discernment that's actually going to see you through. Because after all, discernment is, as I said, it's strategic. It's like learning a skill. And the Buddha talks about seven aspects. This is one of the lists that was in the reading. Um, there are seven aspects to discernment. First is knowing what the Dharma is. Second is knowing what the atta, i.e. the goal or purpose of the dharma is. Another is having a sense of yourself, i.e. what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses that you have to work on. Um, having a sense of moderation, how much conversation is too much, how much conversation is too little, how much food is too much, how much sleep is too much, how much is too little. Um, having a sense of the right time and place for things having a sense of social gatherings. In other words, you're going into a group of Brahmins, how do you talk, how do you act? You're going into a group of Bay Area Dharma people, how do you talk, how do you act? <laughs> and then finally there's a sense of distinctions among individuals. In other words, who are the good people to emulate and who are the good people not to emulate? In other words, you're using your judgment in how you judge people as to who will be helpful in the path and who will not. Um, of these seven, there's only one that, come, that actually c comes from reading, and i.e. that's knowledge of the Dharma. You know, what did the Buddha actually say? You can read books and you can know that. All the others, knowing what is the purpose or meaning of these teachings, 
having a sense of yourself, having a sense of moderation, a sense of time, a sense of social gatherings, and a sense of what he calls distinctions among individuals. These are things that you have to learn through your own powers of observation. So discernment is not just memorizing the text, but you actually have to learn how to think things through and then put them into practice and learn from trial and error as to what is skillful and what's not. Um, so it requires your powers of active observation. And this, of course, requires that you want to start out by finding good people to emulate so you can get a sense of, well, how do they handle these things? What is their sense of moderation? You know, going over to Thailand, I, I assumed that eight hours of sleep was you know, plenty moderate. <laughs> get to Thailand, five hours is moderate among the forest tradition. Of course, you've got to be meditating most of the day in order to not you know, wear yourself out. But their sense of moderation was very different from my sense of moderation, so I had to learn something from being around people who, had act, who were actually on the path. So we'll be, we'll be picking up on this particular point after, the, after we break for lunch, but I just want to sort of get it out there, think about things. Your sense of moderation, your sense of yourself on the path, where your weaknesses are, where your, where your strengths are, the sense of the right time and place to do things, the sense of who you should emulate. You, this is something you really have to actively develop on your own. This is an aspect of discernment that's really, really important. You think about a John Lee's images of the practice of being like developing a skill. You can learn from a teacher basically how to weave a basket, and they can give you an example. But then you've got to go off and start weaving baskets yourself, and then you learn from your baskets what's working, what's not working, what you need to learn from your own experience in trying to weave baskets. And be willing to make mistakes, learn from the mistakes, not get tied up about your past mistakes, but also, but at the same time, not ignore them or deny them. And that's the attitude that we have to develop as we're developing discernment. Any last questions before we break? Yes. Mm -hmm. For me, this question that I'm going to ask is at the crossroad between goodwill towards other and discernment. Mm -hmm. And I think the simplest way to boil it down is this. Um, are there any Dharma guidelines about which people is better actually to avoid mm -hmm. engaging with? Mm -hmm. um, and I don't mean the obvious like murderers, drug addicts, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of quality of characters. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes I find that um, I feel a sense of almost of obligation in terms of goodwill mm -hmm. to deal with people who have been kind of a drain, mm -hmm. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's the question, if there are. Okay, this really depends on to what extent you are committed to that relationship. I mean, if your mother's a drain, you still have to deal with your mother. You know? <laughs> but at the same time, you have to learn, okay, what, you have to establish some boundaries. And again, this is one of those areas that, where you have to learn from your own powers of observation. To what extent can I maintain my goodwill for my mother and still be dealing with her? And to what extent do I have to sort of pull back and draw a few lines? And there are no clear-cut and sort of, you know, 
ten perfections of relationships kind of list, list that you could go down. But you have to notice, okay, when I'm engaged with this person in this particular way, is it really making it harder for me to practice? And again, depending on the extent to which you're committed to the relationship, you may say, I'm just going to cut off this relationship, at least for the time being, or draw a few boundaries around it so that I can still maintain my, my sanity and maintain my strength. I mean, you have to have goodwill for everybody, but the way you express goodwill, and we'll be getting into this later, does not necessarily mean you're going to go out there and just be loving, kind, loving and kinding, loving and kinding to everybody. But because <laughs> what does goodwill mean? It means that you know, wishing for that person's happiness. That person's happiness is going to come from their own actions. And to what extent can you actually influence somebody else's actions? That's going to be a you know individual basis. Sometimes you have to use, you know, you have to parse it out on an individual map, on, on an individual case-by-case basis. But again, this is one of those areas where you've got to learn to use your powers of observation. I mean, the Buddha never said, you know, there's that passage in the um, Karnaniya Metta Sutta where it's usually translated as, you know, just as a mother cherishes her child, you should cherish all beings, which is a mistranslation. He's basically saying, you have to protect your goodwill the same way a mother protects her child. Which is something else entirely. And the illustration the Buddha gives is, you know, suppose someone, you know, you've got these murderers who have pinned you down and they're sawing off your limbs. Okay, obviously there's nothing you can do about that, but you can't have goodwill for them. He says, we try to protect your goodwill, even in a case like that. But it doesn't mean you have to, you know, go out and be loving and kind to snakes and scorpions and mothers all the time. Okay. <laughs> sorry to sorry to place them in a ca- sort of a category like that, but <laughs> I'm wondering um, about the seed of discernment. Um, because, well, take for you, for instance, you made a discernment to become a forest mm-hmm. monk. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe there aren't a lot of people who would choose that path. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm and do you, did that come about because of... Um, where your consciousness came into the, this body of yours, you know, I, I've had various things, paths to discern, and I I chose a particular one, mm-hmm. um, and I can um, look back in my life about how that um, came about, mm-hmm. um, and I think it it came from. The consciousness that came into this particular body, mm-hmm. but I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Oh my gosh, it's very complicated. Um, I mean, in my own case, I it was like I must have had some good karma. I met a John Fuang in a very unlikely way. Um, this is back before the forest tradition was even well known, even in Thailand, and sort of came across it. And then, but part of me realized, okay, this is some, this is a skill that I would really like to master. The skill that he has. And then the next question was, okay, how do I go about doing that? And I was hoping, well, I can pick up the basics and then come home 
and have a nice normal life. Not have everybody stare at me all the time when I'm wearing robes like this. Um, but then I realized I can't do that. I've got to go back and make that sacrifice. And part of me was saying, no, 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 there must be another way. But then the other part of me said, well, if I don't choose this, and how will I feel you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the line? thinking that, well, I missed a good choice while I had it. So I decided to take it. There was kind of a, it was kind of a gamble that this would actually work out. Because as Kierkegaard says, you know, we live forward but understand backwards. <laughs> and so I'm mean, looking back, I think it was the best decision I ever made. But again, it, was, it wasn't a certain thing to begin with. So what you do is you look at the you look at your options and you say well, what, what looks like a like, you know, likely option, and you hope that you've developed enough discernment. There's that mouse pad that has the picture of the this mouse climbing into a mouse trap and saying, "I can still get away with this." <laughs> and underneath it says, "Teenage mouse," you know. <laughs> so it's a combination of. Having the opportunities based on your past karma, and then also having the judgment to say, okay, this is an opportunity that looks like it's going to pay off. So, Thank you. One more question, then we do. I didn't understand what you said a minute ago about goodwill guarding it when somebody's cutting off your legs, but not guarding it. You know, not in having feelings towards spiders and snakes and things like no, that. No, you have goodwill for everybody. But it doesn't mean that you have to get involved with everybody. You don't have to treat everybody with, you know, you don't go up and pet snakes or show your loving kindness to snakes. Sometimes your loving, your goodwill for snakes means, okay, you're on that side of the forest, I'm on this side of the forest. We go our separate ways. How would that be, though, when somebody is harming you so much? Okay, in the case... I was talking to a Dharma teacher up here one time, and I said, you know, there is a rule against monks killing, right? Um, And we're not supposed to hit people, except out of self-defense. We are allowed to hit in self-defense, without the intention to kill. He said, gee, I didn't realize that you might actually hit me. Of course, I thought, but I never realized you actually entertained the, the, the idea of hitting me first. Um, <laughs> so you, know, you do protect yourself when you can. But if you've got bandits pinning you down with all four, you know, all four limbs, there's nothing you can do. That's when you say, okay, I'm just going to have goodwill. But if you can fight back, you do fight back, but without the intention to kill. And one, one more thing before we break. As I said, I was reading through other books on, on the Eightfold Path, and I came across this statement by one of the books saying, you know, um, the Buddha talks about avoiding harmful speech, but we look at what the Buddha actually said, and there were times when he harmed other people with his speech. So I was curious about that, so I looked into it. He was basically saying he said things that people didn't like. Now, the idea that saying something that someone doesn't like is harmful to them, that's really dangerous. You can't just let other people's likes or dislikes determine what's harmful and what's not harmful to them. I mean, harmful to other people is actually getting them to kill, steal, and have illicit sex, and lie, and drink you know, alcohol. 
those kinds of things. That's actually harmful to other people. Doing or saying things they don't like, that's not harmful. Important distinction. Okay. okay, we'll break for lunch. We'll get back at one or whatever. So how many people need handouts? Raise your hand. Who could allow one, one, two, three handouts? If you don't have so raise your hands again. Go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten, eleven, twelve, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Okay, so during lunch I will Xerox those and put those over there. Um, Ajahn Jeff will be outside and there'll be a line to do the meal offering. Um, and then afterwards put your dishes, we'll set up a table over there. Jeff and Rita, can you help out? setting up the place. And Joaquin, can you help out? Setting up the place. And so put food out there. And how long for lunch? How long for lunch? How long for lunch? What time? Well, one? So 11 to 1? Okay, start at 1 again. Okay. Um, and the other thing I forgot to mention, there is tea you can make out there uh, if you want. And if you use a cup, you can put your name on it if you want to continue to use it. Okay. Huh? You, but you can't bring the tea in here. Any questions? All right, let's get moving.